You are listening to As a Woman, episode 53, Friendship with Dr. Renee Paro. I want you to listen to what it means to be a friend. How can you learn to support others without competing against them? What does it mean to show up? Listen to Renee's story now about her path toward medicine, her struggles with infertility, and how she is a great friend. Welcome to As a Woman, the podcast hosted by fertility physician, Dr. Natalie Crawford, to educate and empower women. Each week, learn about your health, your fertility, and how they relate to your true self. Become a part of the community, fostering collaboration over competition, while learning how to authentically find your voice and amplify others as a woman. Hey, friends. Welcome back to As a Woman. We are currently listening to episode 53 friendship with Renee. I really wanted to title this episode Nat and Renee, but you know, the girl worked hard and she deserves a real title with Dr. Renee Paro in it, but subtitle Nat and Renee. Also, it's episode 53. So do you know what that means? This podcast has been out for a year. I just want to take a moment and say, I'm so thankful. Most podcasts that enter the world do not make it a full year. And we have had weekly episodes for the entire year. And you guys have shown up and supported me. And that means so much because this was just a dream and a labor of love. And it is so meaningful how you support it and share it. And I love you. Every single one of you for this. Thank you. All right. Well, I am so excited to share with you the interview that Renee and I had. But let me tell you a little bit about her in case you don't know. Renee Pyro is a pediatric cardiologist in Northern California. She loves general pediatric cardiology, preventative cardiology, childhood obesity and high cholesterol, and fetal echo. She completed her undergrad at Arizona State, where she got a degree in biochem, and then she got her medical doctorate at the University of Chicago. She did residency and fellowship at Stanford. And in her final year of fellowship, she was chief fellow because she's amazing. She is a mom of two kids. She suffered from infertility herself. She's going to talk a little bit about her uterine septum. And she's married to John Paro, who is one of the funniest human beings I've ever met. Together, they have co-founded a nonprofit called Dr. Vegetable. And if you don't follow them, you need to right now. Renee also co-hosts a podcast with John called Reconciling Medicine, where they discuss their past in medicine and how they make medicine fit into their lives and not suffer from burnout. You can follow Renee on Instagram at drreneeparo.com. You can also go to her website, which is reneeparo.com. They also have a YouTube channel and TikTok, Dr. Vegetable, and it's D-O-C-T-O-R, Vegetable. But anyways, let's dive on in. I can't wait to hear what you think about this. Hi, everyone. So I am here with Renee, and I am so excited. Renee, thank you so much for taking your time to be here on the As A Woman podcast. You're excited. I'm very excited. (laughs) Yay! So for those of you who don't know, Renee is on Instagram. I'm sure most of you know that, at Dr. Renee Paro. And she also has a nonprofit, Dr. Vegetable. She's a pediatric cardiologist and mom of two. So Renee, I just want to start by saying one I love you. You're amazing. And two, I want you to share your journey. Your journey. Why'd you go into medicine? 
So um, first of all, I am just so happy to be here. And I will say that my Instagram handle name is at Dr. Renee Paro because of Natalie. So (laughs) (laughs) different. So I'm going to start off by saying that Uh, she helped me change that. But anyway, um, my journey to medicine really started pretty young. So I, um, I knew I wanted to be a doctor since I was seven. uh, And that's because I have some aunts who had lots of children uh, around that age. And I was able to be in the delivery room on the first baby that was born. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. When I was in there, I was like, this is amazing. I thought it was super fascinating. I was like all up in it, like wanting to watch them push and being next to um, my aunt and watching the whole birth process. And, um, and I just thought it was just like natural to feel that way. Um, but I have two sisters who were also in the room and both of them were like, were like totally white <laughs> and not into it. Um, and, you know, from there, I think, you know, I feel, I feel like that those of us in medicine, I mean, not everyone, but a lot of us, we have these like moments where we're just like, wow, where you're like kind of captivated, fascinated by it. And I just sort of leaned into that and um, really just kind of thought about how I could be a doctor and, and would watch shows and all that stuff. I don't come from a family of anyone who is medical. So my parents are not in medicine. No one else in my family is in medicine. So it really was all me just trying to figure out if I like this path. And so I'm kind of a person that once I know I want something, I just kind of just go head first into it and don't really put blinders on and just go forward. Straight yeah. You think so? A little bit. A little bit, right? (laughs) I love that about you. Just a little bit. Uh, So, you know, I just, I was like, I'll be a doctor. So I had that whole path in high school and then I went to college and um, did a biochemistry degree from Arizona State um, where I got a full ride tuition. I stayed in state so I could not pay for undergrad. Um, And then, um, you know, and there I did volunteered at some um, hospitals and I volunteered at uh, the local children's hospital and did something called a baby hugger. So I got to go in and like, go and just like go to any of the rooms where the parents were gone and sit with the kids or play with the kids or hold babies. Um, and I just knew I was like, this is, I loved the hospital setting. I liked the role of the physician, the fact that they're the leader, they're the, you know, they're the ones who are sort of running the ship. And I really liked that and fit with my personality. So I just kept going and it took me to medical school in Chicago, residency in California. And here I am. So you chose pediatrics and you're a pediatric cardiologist. Did you always know you wanted to do PD cards or was it just you love children? So peds was the natural first step. Did you always know about a fellowship? Tell me about that decision. So going into medical school, I really was thinking I would either do OB or PEDS. And the reason why I was thinking OB was because of that early experience with pregnancy or with the delivery. I really liked that. And I didn't know, was it like, that I liked that part of it or that I liked the kid part of it. Um, I also will have to say I worked at my mom's preschool. She's owned a preschool and operated a preschool. Um, she's completely ridiculously inspirational, her whole story. Um, but I had always been around kids. I'd always worked at the preschool and loved the interaction with them. So I, I thought, you know, I probably would go down one of those two paths. In medical school, I put Pete as my, like, I think my, second rotation, whatever the one they tell you, you should put as the one that you think you're going to do. Um, and I loved it. Uh, and then I put OB right next to it and I loved OB. I really did. I liked the pregnancy part. I liked the delivery, but I rec- I realized that like after the delivery, like I kind of didn't really care to be next to <laughs> <anymore>. <laughs> Unlike me, when I would like, take the baby, take the baby. <laughs> take them away. But I was like, ooh, I want to go with the baby. So I kind of knew, I was like, you know, I really do like the, 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 the peed side more. 
And so I, I made that decision to go peds. I actually, almost, I, so I had a very like, uh, kind of a, what's that, like an existential crisis for a second. Cause I really liked surgery. So I did mm-hmm. surgery first. And, um, for those of you who don't know, I'm married to a now plastic surgeon and I knew John was probably going to do surgery. Like he was pretty intense on doing surgery. So when I did the rotation and thought like, uh, kind of like surgery, it was a little bit like, what? And, and there are, I will come out and say this, there are multiple double surgeon households where people, both people are surgeons and they make it work and it's great. In my mind, I didn't want that. I didn't want to have to, I felt like I wanted to have one of us who could be a little bit more, you know, reliable. And in, and in a double surgeon household, like when you're a surgeon, it's very difficult to be the person who's reliable. And right. so you don't know how long one single case is going to take exactly. alone the whole OR day. Exactly. So, um, so I, I had a great advice from, um, a pediatric, uh, surgery fellow when I was going through it, she was like, mm-hmm. listen, if surgery is the only thing you can see yourself doing like the OR and being in there and like, that's the only thing that can make you happy, then do that. But if you could see yourself doing anything else that can make you happy, then do that. Because being a surgeon is really hard. And you know that. And now watching John do that, like putting your hands and cutting into someone is an entirely different beast. Like it's an entirely different beast. Then you have to really be passionate about it to want to do it. And I would have been, but I I didn't need, it wasn't what I needed to do. So anyway, that's how I kind of came off surgery and then um, went into peds and loved peds. It was great. I love kids. I love the fact that like, they're so resilient. They bounce back so quickly. Parents are really apt to listen to what you have to say because they're terrified about their kids and they want to make sure they're doing the best by them. Um, I wasn't a big fan of general pediatrics. It just, it wasn't, um, for me, it was a challenge to answer a lot of, and general pediatricians do this. I give them so much credit, but like answering the like, well, what about this? And what about that? And that kind of stuff I'm just was never really good at. I really kind of like more sort of cut and dry things, more physiologic things. Um, and so when I did my, um, when I, when I did my peds rotation in med school, then I matched at Stanford and I didn't really have a lot of experience in pediatric cardiology in my medical school, but I did it at my residency. I did it as my first rotation and I just loved it. Pediatric cardiology was my first rotation. I loved the anatomy, the physiology. I loved the personalities of people who went into pediatric cardiology. I liked the fact that you could do, you could do some sort of interventional for a while. I thought I was going to do that, ended up not doing that. But, you know, you do procedural stuff with echoes and reading EKGs and all that kind of stuff. So I really loved the field. Plus it has a bit of a surgical bend to it. Um, because your patients go through surgery a lot. So you talk with surgeons a lot about what's going to happen and you talk to the interventionalists about your patients. So you don't do the surgeries, but you actually get to think through a lot of it, which I, which I really liked. And then interestingly enough, it tied back into OB because you could also practice fetal echocardiography mm-hmm. where you do fetal echoes on pregnant women. So I've always loved the pregnancy part and the kid part. And so I could actually tie that piece that I always liked about OB back in so now I get to do it all. That's how I'm here. I think it's I such it. a good fit for you. Obviously, it's easy to say that, you know, now because I know you and I see you do this job. But I also think one thing that's so interesting is we both have jobs that are really collaborative. And that's not something you ever think about when you're in medical school trying to choose your field. The fact that you get to interact with different specialists and different people to really care for a person as a whole. I enjoy that so much. Like I love talking to 
MFM about some of my patients, or I love talking to if they need, you know, a surgeon for something different. I just really like that group approach to medicine. And it's fun to interact with other physicians, even those who are not quite in your lane, but you work in parallel together. And that's not something I ever considered when I was in med school before. No, I wholeheartedly agree. I love that part. Like you get to just function within a team and really be there for your other specialists and they really are generalists and they really appreciate your presence. And it's, it's great. I love it. Yeah. I love sending patients, you know, back to their OB and it's, here's our piece of the puzzle and here we go. So that's the one fun thing about being a subspecialist is you, one, get to know, be the expert in your field. And that's always very fun. Yes. But two, you get to work with other doctors and that part's really nice too. You brought John up. So when did you guys get together? Because he's a plastic surgeon. So you guys met in med school, right? Yes. We met um, as first year med students. Um, And he came in uh, in a relationship that I did not break up. (laughs) (laughs) Put it out there. Nobody would judge you if you did because y'all are perfect (laughs) together. So just putting that out there. No, he was in a relationship. He and his relationship ended up ending uh, the first six months in. And then we were just really good friends. Um, And after he was single, um, it's actually really funny. I didn't even recognize that I liked him. It was my mom who pointed it out to me. She was like, there was a dance and she, um, she kind of just like, you need to be careful tonight. And I'm like, what are you talking about, mom? (laughs) You've been talking about this John guy a lot. And I was like, uh, what? She's like, make sure you use protection. Oh my gosh. And then I was like, wait a second, do I like him? And then I, I recognized that I did. And so we started off and on dating, um, a little bit. We hadn't really committed to each other. It took about a year of, um, back and forth of, and we really liked each other. And if you want to know the story, you can go on my Instagram and read, uh, our, my, poop or get off the pot uh, moment where I basically told him he either needed to be something or we needed to be nothing. And he originally said nothing. Nothing. (laughs) Stupid boy. It took him less than 24 hours to completely reverse that decision and ask me to be his girlfriend. And from then on, we've been inseparable since. So yeah, we met as first year event students, started dating in our second year, got engaged um, after we... fourth year yeah so the we had actually been interviewing we decided a couples match fourth year we're not engaged but then he asked me to marry him like december of our fourth year so like right in the middle of the um, application season and then exciting our intern year uh, the after our intern year and now a word from one of our sponsors ritual did you know that 97 percent of women aged 19 to 50 are not getting enough vitamin d from their diet Ritual is essential for women 18 and plus was shown to increase vitamin D levels by 43% in a clinical study. I love Ritual and I love taking their essential for women 18 plus every single day. One reason I love it is that it's gentle on an empty stomach and it has a minty essence. So every bottle feels refreshing and is actually enjoyable. It's also clinically backed multivitamin with high quality and traceable key ingredients and they have industry-leading sustainability standards. No more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 and Over is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com A-A-W. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com A-A-W for 25% off. 
And now a word from one of our sponsors, Caraway. Spring is coming and I always love a good home reset. Non-toxic cookware is the perfect way for you to kick off your own spring cleaning. With so many collections to explore, there is a Caraway for every cook. Their internet famous kitchenware is a staple for any home. It comes with beautiful shades to fit your aesthetic, but most importantly, you're ditching the chemicals. Caraway's non-toxic kitchenware comes a chemical-free ceramic coating so your food can be prepared without any of those hard-to-pronounce chemicals leaching in to your healthy ingredients. Everybody knows that I am a big believer that our environment impacts our body, and that's why I trust Caraway with my cooking. Visit carawayhome.com A-A-W to take advantage of this limited-time offer for 10% off your next purchase. This deal is exclusive for our listeners, so visit carawayhome.com A-A-W or use the code A-A-W at checkout. Caraway non-toxic cookware made modern. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Quince. My closet has a tendency to get chaotic and crammed with a bunch of clothes that I don't really want to wear. What's been a game changer for me has been upgrading to high quality and affordable pieces from Quince. Now I have a wardrobe full of luxury and classic essentials and I stayed on budget. The best part is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands and they do this by partnering directly with top factories, cutting out the middleman and passing the savings on to us. In addition, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing and premium products and finishes. I personally am loving the linen pieces as it's Texas and summer is upon us. Indulge in affordable luxury. Go to quince.com A-A-W for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot A-A-W to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com A-A-W. I have no experience with the whole couples match situation, but it sounds really stressful. Was that a really stressful time? Uh, you know, I will say that we were both very fortunate is that we were both really strong individually in our own fields. So he was a super strong, he originally matched in general surgery. He was a super strong general surgery applicant, decided midway through he wanted to do plastics and that's a whole nother story. But, um, he was a super strong surgical candidate. I was a very strong pediatric candidate. So I think that made it less like we were, we didn't have to rely on like neither of us for one that we had to really like we're feeling like we had to pull each other up right Uh, nobody was bringing the group down you both were strong independently yes so I think that we looked at and this is sort of how John and I kind of are it was stressful but we tend to try to focus on like you can either focus on the hard part or you can focus on the good part and what we ended up doing is we're like hey let's take let's make this like a little bit of like an experience we could travel together so like we always we tried to pick our dates luckily i had a whole lot of dates to select from and john had very few but i would when we got our it winning when we got our um invitations to interview we would just plan trips together so we took it as like a well where are we going to live together for the next you know possibly forever part of our life, but at least six years more than likely for him. Um, and so we just would go on trips and we went all around the country. We spent way too much money, but it was really fun. We actually really enjoyed it a lot. Um, so honestly, for us, it was not that stressful. That's so I mean, it's good. as stressful as applications are. Applications are stressful no matter what, but we try to make it fun. Yeah. The whole match process is a little bit stressful. Did you have yeah. to match for fellowship? Is that a match? Is that a take it outside the, I don't know how Peds does it. 
Yeah. So fellowship is a match. Um, it is, it is, uh, after, so you apply. So I'm pretty sure it might be different now, but peds, you have to apply in your, I, I had to apply my second year of pediatric residency for a pediatric paleology fellowship. I think it might be now in the third year because some people have a, it's hard to know you're going to, what you're going to subspecialize because that takes into account. If you're matching your second year, you have to sort of know your first year, right. to start getting, you know, letters and really getting your sub eyes or you're not sub eyes, but you're kind of like, you can do, you know, rotations within there. Um, so, so yeah, so you have to know in the middle, I, like I said, I knew at the beginning of my intern year that I wanted to do cardiology after a few months, but, um, yeah. So then I had to, do that. So he was at fellowship at, he was a residency program at Stanford. And then I was like, all right, well, what am I going to do? And I ended up actually interviewing across the country. I took, I knew I wasn't going to go to a lot of places, but I took this as a, and I'm sure there's something you completely agree with. Like the world of pediatric cardiology is extremely small. And so I was like, this is going to be a good time for me to interface with a lot of big programs. It's so true. It is so true. You will meet so many different people, both on the application trail, because these are going to be your colleagues and your peers and some big names in your field. When else do you get a one-on-one sit down with them and they remember you, you know, they'll see you at meetings years later and know who you are. It's really such a unique opportunity. Exactly. So I just like went around. I, mean, I went to Boston. I went to Philadelphia. I went to uh, Chicago. I went to all the big programs that I could think of. And I interviewed at all of them. And all of them were like, kind of like, well, I mean, your husband's at Stanford. Like, what's the likelihood you're going to change? But there are a few of them who took it on. Like I went to Michigan and they were like, we will find, we will figure out a way to get your husband here if you really want to come. And so it was great. It was a great time to interface with a lot of people and I really enjoyed it. But at the end of the day, this was a little bit more baldy. I only ranked Stanford. Oh, look at you, girl. Just one. Um, and I mean, I had done research with the fellowship director. I knew everybody at the, fe- I mean, I had done a huge, hugely hard job of like, really ingraining myself in with all the fellows with all the fellows so I was I would have been a little shocked if I didn't match there obviously it's not a guarantee but um it's kind of nice though the morning of like it just said you have matched and I was like okay well, like, where I'm going. Right? <laughs> that's true now <laughs> one thing when I was in med school that always was a concern for me was when to have children and could I go into a field that would allow that and what was a good time for this and how do you plan it? And I'm sure that was even extra complicated, be it that your husband was in surgery and surgery residency and all of that. How Were you worried about that when you were a med student or did you not really care about that? What were you thinking? Um, you know, as a med student, I, in my mind, I had always thought I was going to have a kid during training. And I don't know, I don't know why I had just had in my mind. I, I mean, I don't know anybody, like I mentioned, I don't, I didn't have any other examples in front of me, except for the people who like I had met through the residency and medical process. And I had seen a lot of what I fortunately had seen a lot of women in inter, my, when I was in med school that just had kids during residency. So I thought it was like fairly normal. Um, it's not, so, you're aware of that, right? It's not. Yeah, no, now I am. <laughs> I think that it's just like, I, I really think in a lot of ways I was very naive, um, about things going in. I was like, well, I'm going to be a doctor. And then I got, I was like, well, go, go to med school. And I applied to the most random places and then like it got into a great program. And, and so I think I was a little bit, I don't know, maybe it's blissfully naive because I didn't think about a lot of this stuff. Um, but I just, I thought, you know what, I'm going to do things that make sense for me when they make sense. Um, and I think it's just always been, I've always had that kind of personality that it's like, 
I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And people are going to say things or people are going to like look at me funny or whatever, but like, it's, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. Cause at the end of the day, it's my life. Um, yeah, I love so, that mentality. So I just, I just went through. And when I met John, we had known that we wanted to have kids spaced apart. We didn't want them close together. And so I knew that meant that we would have to, one would have to be born in training because the second one would probably be born after training. Um, and so when we decided it was, um, you know, we got married at the end of our intern year and I still have to remember this complete, this breakfast. We sat down, like, I think it was like a week after we got married. And I was like, you know, when do you want to start thinking about having a kid? And he was like, tonight. <laughs> so John. He, was all, he was just all in, like he was ready. He was ready to, uh, to be a dad. I was ready to like start going after it. And so we just decided let's, let's start trying. Um, and obviously we'll probably talk a little bit about my struggles, but yeah, I was going to say, you did not have the most linear path to having your children. Yeah. So I, um, so intern year, I went to be a good patient. I went to go establish primary care with a physician at, uh, internal medicine physician at Stanford. And I went and I had hadn't, I had gotten an IUD placed in medical school, um, for birth control. And so when I went in for my check, she did her, my well woman exam and she couldn't find the strings of my IUD. And so she sent me for an ultrasound. And when I went for the ultrasound, they saw my IUD was lodged like way up in the right horn of my uterus. Um, and they thought I actually might have like a bicornate uterus by the way it looked. Um, and so I, they sent me down the whole, like, you know, how to go get a HG, HSG, HSG. Yeah. I'm going to say conveniently, if you didn't listen to it, the episode before this one is called the uterus and I'm talking all about uterine abnormalities. So some of what Renee is saying will make more sense, but keep going. You got an HSG. So good. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, so I went for an HSG, which, oh my God, that is not the most comfortable procedure. It sucks, right? It really sucks. Um, And so from there, they saw a very large, you know, a large septum and they still didn't, couldn't tell whether or not, because obviously it was because of the intrauterine anatomy, not the extrauterine anatomy. Um, So they sent me for that. They saw a huge, you know, huge wall septum in my uterus. And so then they sent me for an MRI. Got the MRI and that showed that the, you know, it wasn't two uterus, just one. It was a big, big, very large septum. So I actually got an interface with your world very early because from there, my OB sent me to a, um, well, she said, so she pulled the, yeah, sorry, she, my OB sent me to a fertility specialist to talk about this septum and to talk about my future fertility risks. And so I went to my fertility specialist and she basically said, listen, um, you know, this is very strange that you present this way because typically people like you come in after they've had multiple failed miscarriage, multiple mm-hmm. failed, uh, pregnancies. Um, so I don't know if you would even be able to get pregnant. She's like, but with as large as your septum is, I do think that it's reasonable to go in and try resecting some of it before you try. And so we did. And so from going in from the beginning, I knew like I had a higher risk of miscarriage um, just by having this. So we, she went in, wasn't able to get the entirety of the septum out because it was really large and with some sort of caps on uh, the limits they could do in the outpatient surgery center. Um, so I still had a decent amount of the septum left. And she was like, listen, you guys can try. Let's just try. Let's see what we what happens. Um, so the first time Luckily, I've always gotten pregnant very easily. Um, so once we started trying, we tried and pretty much on the first month I got pregnant. Um, and then the first, the first time I got pregnant, you know, 
you start to fill everything, take positive pregnancy tests, go in for the ultrasound, and there was nothing there. So just the blighted ovum. Um, and so after that one, I had a DNC. And then uh, we decided to actually go back in for another resection of the septum because the tissue was actually normal. Um, the the any de- uh, genetic the abnormalities. Tissue, yeah, so it's genetically and so, normal. Exactly. So she thought, okay, well, maybe this may, might have submitted the septum. So we went back in for another septal resection. And, um, and then after that, tried again and then got pregnant with Micah. So Yay, Micah. that worked. And he came along the end, the middle of my third year of residency. So I was six months to fellowship when he was born. He was born in December. Um, and it was great. He was wonderful. And I didn't have to think about my uterus for a long period of time. And it was great. They put an <laughs> IUD back in and I was like, we're not, no, no, no. They didn't put an IUD. I actually took hormonal birth control. So we didn't, we, we didn't want to put anything in my uterus because I'd had procedures and, yeah. you know, and so we're just like, everything stays out of the uterus until I'm done having babies. Um, and so that was wonderful. And then Going uh, going through uh, my first year of fellowship and John's fourth year of residency with a six month old to one and a half year old, I don't even know how that hard worked. <laughs> it was it was a challenge, and people have asked me about this before. Um, this is going a little off topic for my um, my you know infertility stuff, but what I have to say is like taking these like any hard period of time I think is like taking things in like very small chunks at a time. You know you can't think like big picture. So what we would do is we would look at things in like months or like a weeks weeks to a time. We'd be like, okay, these two weeks we need this kind of care. So we'd have my mom come in or his mom could come in and help us, you know, with childcare. And we had a nanny that we could barely afford. And we got through that year through just sheer, like, small bites, small you bites. just make it work. You no. Know? And I think that's so true with a lot of, you know, because you don't, you have people who are going through large struggles. And I'm sure that's something you have to counsel patients on. Like, when you're trying to think the whole big picture, it's too hard to look at the whole thing. So it's like, take it in small steps, right? Just go focus on the step that best that you can that's right in front of you. So we did that and we, he's, he made it through, we made it through somehow and, um, through to the end. And then I went on again to try. So then after we, at the end of my fellowship decided, okay, we're going to start trying again, um, prior to, you know, starting a job. So maybe I'd have a baby partway through my first year mm-hmm. of attending head, um, ended up getting pregnant again, having another miscarriage. Um, and that one was a little bit, a little bit more challenging and, a little more of a struggle because this time I didn't want to get a DNC because I knew I any increased risk to my lining was not good. So that, that going through a medical miscarriage is not fun. And it's really not. People tend to think it's easier than surgery, but in a lot of ways, surgery is a lot simpler. It's just done. Exactly. You're done, you recover and it's gone. And this one, you know, it's just like a blood for a long time. And it was, it took a while to get back to my normal state. Um, but eventually I did. And got pregnant with Juliet and she was born three months into my, uh, my first year as an attending and our family is complete. Love <laughs> and I don't it. Have to think about my uterus anymore. <laughs> well, I do because it's like other things are happening, but anyway, it's no more for babies, no more for babies, <laughs> no more for babies. I love how you and John parent. So segueing to, you know, you guys both have busy lives. You do a lot of things. You have a lot of outside interests, but what you share on social media of how you parent is just 
very fun and a lot of experience and really trying to integrate your kids into your life and not necessarily just doing kid stuff all the time. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. What would you say are some of your general ideas when it comes to being a working mom or being a parent? I am a huge focus on quality over quantity. Um, And I think a lot of working women will say that. Like when I'm putting, when I'm with my kids, I am really focused on being with them and doing things, you know, that are, that are, that are quality time is sharing and like just being present with them. Um, and because, you know, for me, like the time that I'm spent not with them helps me be a better mom. So, um, you know, so we, we try to really make their lives interesting and colorful and fun. A big part of why we chose to live in the Bay area is we have so much to do around us to be outside, to be, um, you know, active, Um, And so I think that, you know, I think that we really just focus on, on, like you said, like pulling them into our lives. So like fitness is a big part of our life. So we've started finding little activities where the kids can do these like little kid challenges or. Yeah. I've seen my kid do like runs and and things in mud and stuff. (laughs) I have to say a lot of this is John. John (laughs) is really good at finding, he has all these websites. He finds fun things to do around the area. Um, And so, you know, we, we really want our time with them to be fun and interesting Um, but it's a challenge too, right? They're still kids and we really have to, um, we have to do all the same parenting. I know a lot of people think that like our kids are these magic little unicorns that like are just perfect all the time and they're not. Um, and so it's, 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 it's doing all those things in between lots of teaching, lots of talking. Um, and I don't know, I just think that like, you don't have to, you don't have to, you don't have to do like the typical, like small kid thing all the time. Like them being with you and happy is like everything. Right. And then you guys do the same thing with your kids. I mean, you took them to like Austin city limits and like, yeah, you know, we just drag them to places because yeah, they love it though. Right. Those are the memories that they, that they love looking back. And you know, I, I think when they are older, I think those, I think they'll be happy when they see them. <laughs> Yeah, obviously we hope so, right? No. (laughs) I um okay. So now I want to talk about us, you and me. So I remember coming across your Instagram a really long time ago, three plus years ago, you know, when we were both very small accounts. And I really felt connected to you from the beginning because you were really authentic in your posts and you were another doctor mom and just kind of putting yourself out there. What was your main motivation when you first entered Instagram? Like, why'd you get on the social media doctor platform? Yeah. So, I mean, I actually started social media more um, from some like fitness coaching. So I dabbled in doing some like beach body coaching for a while and it was sort of where everybody was at. And that's where I originally started it at. It morphed over time, actually, because of you, uh-huh. seeing people like you and using it as what they want. Because I, you know, the thing about social media is I saw it from the lens that a lot of people physicians or people in medicine see social media as now who are not actively doing it. I was like, I can't really share anything on here. I don't know. Like, I don't know what I can share as a doctor and just, just all of the pitfalls you hear people who say now, like, it's not a place I should be on that. So I didn't really share a lot of the doctor stuff, just fitness stuff for myself. And mostly I kind of integrated the doctors like, well, I am a doctor and I'm better than fitness, fitness, fitness. And then over time, 
seeing people like you, seeing people like Laura, Laura Scott, seeing people who, you know, bigger people on Instagram, Austin Chang was one of the first when I started following um, Danielle. I was like, oh, they're actually using their doctor stuff in a way that's really helpful. Um, and so then I started doing more of that and really kind of speaking more from a physician perspective. But I've always kept the fitness thing. That's really, I think that if most people follow me, they'll probably see that as like my main thing because that, I think that is my, that is my passion within the space is to show people that just because you, because physicians, physician women specifically are really good at being like, well, I can't do that because I'm a doctor and I'm a mom and I'm, and I'm, excuses, right. Putting themselves last. Mm -hmm. And you're like, and they see other people who are doing that, like, well, yeah, it's really easy for that person because they're not me and they're, it's really easy. And, but what, what I want to do is be like, actually, I am you. I, I am you and I'm doing this and it's, and it can be done and it should be done and you're worth it. And actually, I would argue that you need it. Um, and so that has been a really powerful position to be in um, and something that I've loved. But yes, you came across me a long period of time. I'm going to say this. And you just would, you were so amazing. I remember specifically like, you know, it would be a post I would put up and then like days later, somehow you'd come on and be like, oh my gosh, I missed this. I love this. And you would just always be on my page. And I was like, who is this woman who doesn't know me? But I like love her. And it was just, it was, it was wonderful. I just love, I just loved you from the beginning. Um, your message always really resonated with me because I was that person, I think when we first came on, um, that was not prioritizing myself at all. I was like so busy doing all these other things. And I felt like, gosh, if Renee is doing this, why not me? Like, why can I not? Like, what is my excuse for not spending 20 minutes or some small amount of time doing something that will make me a better caretaker of others. And I think that's the biggest thing, right? Is that we in, we take care of ourselves. We really do take care of other people more and better. Yeah, totally. You have, um, I also say this, you've also been one of the people that I think has most constantly encouraged other people to incorporate wellness and exercise into their life. If you look at the sheer number of posts where people have cited you and in no pressurey way, by almost by just showing your journey every day. Here's Renee's quote. Here she is working out. Every single day you're sharing this have inspired so many women to start prioritizing themselves. And I think that's just a huge testament to your authenticity and to you accomplishing this goal that maybe felt very abstract. You're really changing the life of a lot of other people. But what I love the most about you is that we talked about this with Pinnacle, right? So the four of us who founded Pinnacle, we're talking about you one day because we all love you so much. And the one thing that struck us all is how you just show up. You know, you don't just say, oh, I'm proud of you. You really show up. You go to people's pages, you support their causes, you promote them in such a really genuine way. You come, I mean, you came when we first met to Women in White Coats when I was speaking essentially so to support me and so that we could be together. And I think that's such a rare thing in nowadays world to not just give lip service to things, but to truly show up as a friend. And there's so few people who do that. I'm so honored to be one of your friends. How do you try to view friendship? Do you have any tips to other people on how to be a good friend? You know, I think that 
I think that trying to thank I mean, thank you, first of all, for everything you just said. I'm very a little bit a little uh, speechless at, at that. But um I just want to be the kind of friend to people that I would want in my life. Um I really love having effortless friendships. I have a few friends from childhood that who literally like we haven't talked in years, but we'll pick each other. We'll pick up exactly where we left off and there will be no like, why haven't you called me or why didn't this or anything. And, and I just really appreciate those types of relationships, effortless relationships, um, where you just are together and make each other happier. And I really, I really like to give people to have people feel how amazing they are. I don't know. I don't know what it is about. I just really, I I really enjoy knowing that I am helping somebody else see what they're doing as powerful. Um, because what I have seen with that is it helps people to like rise up even further, like having that, having somebody else recognize what you're doing, it helps to affirm to you that you're doing something important. And if we could all do that for each other, like every single person has something that they can contribute. It's different. Everyone has something different, but the more we can feel like other people can see that, Sometimes we need that external validation and that's okay. And so, I don't know. I think that I've really always taken on the, like, leave the world a little brighter than you entered it um, as like a mantra for myself. And, and, you know, as I've done this more and I've seen how, how much more abundance it's brought to my life, it fuels me to do it even more. And so I, I don't know. And I, and honestly, I have no desire for anything in return. Like I don't. And I, and I love following um, Gary Vee on Instagram because I think that he does this so well. And he's so good about talking about it, like giving without expectation and just giving and giving and giving um, is really freeing. It's really, it really just keeps you in this place of like abundance. And it's a mindset shift though, right? Especially for those of us in medicine who've had to compete against each other and where it was a very different mindset, this idea that we're not necessarily competing, but we're all pushing in the same direction and I'm going to give and you do you and I'm going to support you. That's really not how we were trained. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Rocket Money. Did you know that nearly 75% of people have subscriptions that they've forgotten about? Embarrassingly, I am one of those as well. And Rocket Money can cancel a subscription for you that otherwise could have been a time-consuming process. Between streaming services, fitness apps, and delivery services, it can be never-ending. So Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions. They monitor your spending and help you lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash A-A-W. That's rocketmoney.com slash A-A-W. Rocketmoney.com slash A-A-W. And you know, I hit a pretty low point um, in my 
my, I wasn't, I will say that this, that the only time in my life where I felt like I really wasn't this kind of person was in my first year of, into my second year of fellowship. Um, and I think obviously it was a time of really lack of sleep. I had a child, I had a, you know, baby, I had a res, a husband who was in residency. It was, we were financially strapped. We were, you know, emotionally strapped. It was hard. And I loved the program I was at, but there was, there, there also, I mean, you know, not going to like sugarcoat it. There are some people who are really toxic and negative and I could feel, I, I started to adapt that same persona and at, at work. And then it translated into having difficult difficulties with in relationship with my, in my personal life, family members and other people. And it felt awful. And I, I, that's never been who I was. I've always been a very positive, optimistic person. And for the first time in my life, I was negative and pessimistic and I, and I couldn't stand it. And, you know, it really came from, I mean, even between John and I, we were really fighting a lot more and we were, it was, it wasn't, it was not good. We weren't taking care of ourselves. And so we, as a couple decided together, we needed to focus on taking care of ourselves, getting healthier, which we did, which is a lot why I was talking about fitness. Cause I really felt like for me, that was the path out. Like that was how I started to kind of make my way out of that kind of negativity. Um, and then I started doing it at work <laughs> and it was so weird. So I was a chief fellow of our program, inaugural chief fellow. And, um, and I had to send out every week I had to send out where the, cause like the fellows, you know, the fellows are always on different rotations and they're supposed to be in their continuity clinic and the attendees get annoyed that they didn't know when the fellow was supposed to be there. So I started this thing like fellows in clinic. So they knew which fellows were going to be in clinic, which didn't. And every single email I did, I would put a different quote. So you see my quotes on Instagram. Yes. I would always put a quote at the bottom and I would put like, have a great day. And it was all, I would always leave it at that. And I just started doing that for no reason. Well, to, at the end, when I graduated my fellow, my, from my fellowship, actually some attendings were like, Renee, we're really going to miss your, your fellows in clinic emails. Cause like you always had these really inspiring quotes and it was always so nice. And, and so even in a space where there was like, it was felt like I had a lot of people who said when I was graduating, like, I'm really, we're really going to miss your presence in this program, you know, your ability to bring things up. And so I think that from there, I started to recognize that like, even in any space, you can be different in it and you can lighten it up and make it better. And I think I just kind of, that's just kind of gone on like hyperspeed since then. Cause it's only ever shown tremendous, tremendous benefits. I mean, I have a ridiculously amazing friendship with you. We don't live in the same state. We've seen each other in person two times yet. I feel like more connected to you than like most friendships I have. And it, you know, it's the same with like, that's why I think Pinnacle was such an amazing, I mean, for a thousand reasons, but Pinnacle was such an amazing conference because we've all really forged real friendships together. And all of it stems off of this supporting one another, you know, it's not fluffy. It's not like, like, it's not, it's not fake. It's real. And I don't know. And so I just do it because I see how, how, how inspiring it's been in my own life. It like makes me better. So I think you inspire so many people. You know, we always talk about what would Renee do and trying to act like, you know, the type of support that you give to other people and try to give that. And just imagine, you know, if everybody takes that mindset and tries to make one person a little bit brighter, how much we are helping, especially to women. I mean, not solely to women, but especially to women who tend to deal with imposter syndrome and confidence and self-doubt in a lot more internalizing and negative ways 
I think you're spot on to have somebody support you and believe in you and lift you up carries so much value. It's almost hard to put it into words. I think that it's something different that I hope our generation of women bring to the table. You know, I think that women before us have done an amazing job of like blazing trails into places that we've never been before, breaking glass ceilings, getting into leadership roles. But where I think, where I think that there was a little bit of a, and I don't blame them because they had to really kind of adapt to the way that they were to get to climb the ladder. But there was a lot of more sort of like cutthroat, like not support, like do it because it has to be hard because it was hard for me. Type yeah, of like I survived this so you can too. Exactly. They got us there. But I think now what our, what we have is to, just as like Rupa always says, lift as we rise. Like we can rise together and we all should continue to rise together, but it ha- but we can pull each other up. Like no more, no more cutthroat, no more, no more like the, the typical stereotype that women get that we're catty, that we are in competition with each other. Like all these things, like we don't, we don't, we don't have to be that way. And I would actually argue that a lot of most women are not that way. And I feel like something I feel like I think really needs to be said is that it could, because I'm not perfect. All right. I still fall into the trap of getting frustrated or judging somebody else for why they have this or I don't. And, but what I've come to realize is when I start to feel that emotion, I look back and say, what are you insecure about? Because I know every single time I feel that way, it breeds from some sort of insecurity on myself. And so I work on that. Like that I, and I don't take it as a bad thing. I'm like, oh, great. This is something else I can, I can start to make better. Because all of us have things that we can make better. And I think when you recognize emotionally like certain ways that you would, that you would respond to something that isn't supportive or collaborative, then maybe it's reflective of your own something internally that you need to work on a little bit. I love that perspective. One thing that I always feel like you do really well and something that I lean on you hard for in our friendship is that you have this ability to cultivate your own way and your own path and understand that not everybody's going to like it and be okay with it. And maybe it's just the persona or maybe internally you're not as much, but I know when people don't like what I'm doing or they have negative things to say, or when I hear a lot of the talk externally, it really hits me hard. And I always lean to you and you're like, that doesn't matter. You, know, you got to not pay attention, put the blinders on to what they're saying and keep going forward. And I just think I'd love to hear your perspective on how you deal with that or how you kind of approach that if people are saying negative or how do you cultivate your own path? Because I know even in your job, you took a job in private practice when everybody, the voices wanted you to do academics and you have to be able to stand behind your own decisions. But how do you not let that expectation outweigh things sometimes? Um, Well, I think that, again, it really, just as I just mentioned that, like, if you have your own negative reactions to something and that breeds from insecurity, I think you have to, also, it, it, it translates to others. So, you know, I've recognized that in my first real time doing this is just like you mentioned with my job. The first time I really can think about, like I actually chose a path that was different than what my mentors and everybody else was thinking. When I'm not going to say all of them because there are a few of them who knew me really <laughs> well, who were amazing, who were like cheerleading me on to like take the job that I, they knew I, I should have. Um, but the ones who didn't, 
it was very clear to me over time that it was so much more about them and their own insecurities about whether or not even they liked their job um, and that they needed somebody else to pick it to justify why they should stay in it because it's the only thing. And so I think that I, I really am a huge believer in intuition and alignment and um, not like in the like super like fluffy state of the word, but just more and just like, you know, when things are right for you. Right. And I, and I think that, that so often we get clouded when we when people say, well, I don't know what's right. for me. it's really because you just haven't really been listening to yourself. And that's so easy in medicine because people are going to tell you all the time what you're good at. And, you know, and that's going to make you feel good. And especially in times when you're learning and you feel like you don't know anything and somebody says something to you and you really take that as, you know, as gospel when it's like, no, what is it that's like truly my inner voice, something that I really want. And then going with that. And so, so that when I took the job, that was my first time of like actually really leaning into my own intuition going forward with it. And then seeing this like amazing, just seeing the benefit. I mean, cause like, I'm like, this job is made for me. This job was made for me. And, and so when I knew that it's like, well, I could do that. I just kept doing it. Like I kept leaning into it. And like, I, if there were negative voices, I just tuned them out. I just kept leaning into it. And so I always tell people to like, like willpower is like a muscle, but so is like trusting your intuition. That's like a muscle. Like the more you do it, the more you lean into it, the stronger it gets. And then it just gets really simple. And so then you almost expect that people are going to say things bad about you or whatever you, you don't, you don't, it's not a, it's not a surprise. You're like, okay, well this person doesn't like it, but I don't care because it's in alignment with who I am. So the more you do it, and I see it with you too, the more you do it, you're better at it. We talk about things much less now. There isn't that <laughs> stuff that gets to you as much anymore. And I think that you just, you just have to, just like I say with like exercise and everything, like you just have to do it. Like it's just action. Just take action on it. Like don't think about it so much, like take action. And if it feels right, and you're going to be like, oh, it wasn't as bad as I thought. Because I think we all get wrapped up in our head thinking things are going to be worse than they are. And they're really not, you know, especially if you're doing it, making decisions in alignment with who you are. Oh, I love that advice. Okay, I'm gonna have to wrap up soon. But the last question I have for you is I want you to spend a little time just talking about Dr. Vegetable because you and John did this together. And this is a nonprofit that you guys have started in all your spare time, which is non-existent. And I just want to understand kind of how that started and what your goals are and how anybody who's listening can support you. So Dr. Vegetable is, like Nat just mentioned, our nonprofit. Um, it started because I talked about a couple parts of my practice, but uh, another major part of my pediatric practice is I took on um, a sort of preventative cardiology part to my practice. And that, that, that is patients who have high cholesterol, prediabetes, obesity, um, all things that are risk factors for a future heart disease. Um, and so because I started becoming so health conscious and wellness conscious in fellowship when this part-time job was was crafted it was like it was going to be 0.25 cardiology 0.25 preventative um and i actually thought that was fantastic because then i could for, then incorporate for people who don't that. know like one equals full-time like what's yes, one equals full-time. a day for five days a week yeah so that that put me at a 0.5 mm-hmm. fte um and so when i started doing that clinic 
it was really hard because I was like, you know, as physicians, you're like, you order tests, you do this, you do that, you do that. But this is just all behavioral change, you know, and that's not something I was taught necessarily in peds or definitely not in pediatric cardiology. So I had to learn how to refine my pitch and how I was going to get patients to actually sort of jump on behavioral changes. And before I was like, exercise, eat them, blah, blah, blah. That's too much. It's too much for people. And so what I started to really focus in on when I would, I would take these these really long dietary histories. And I don't have a nutritionist in my clinic. It was just me. And I have, luckily I have like an hour long patient appointment. So I would take these long nutritional histories. And what I started to recognize with all the kids is like, none of them ate vegetables. Like, I mean, if they did, it was like one piece of broccoli at dinner and that was it. Um, Great fruit eaters, you know, usually, um, but lack of vegetables across the board. And so what I started to, instead of trying to kind of inundate people with all these things, I was really just kind of became like, eat more vegetables. How much more? More. How much more? More. How, until you can get yourself to eating a vegetable at every meal, that's when you know you've met, met your max, but just eat more. And so the kids who did that started seeing all the benefits of what we know as you whole food plant-based be, vegan over here in hell. <laughs> Like the effects of it, how you feel, your energy level, your pooping, your... It's in, it changes your entire life. Everything. And the last, and I would really not focus on weight, especially because a lot of these kids would come in for, with who are obese or overweight. And, um, and then they would come in and they would not have weighed themselves or anything. They'd come in and they would they'd be like, did you see what happened? Like, and I always really talk a lot more about BMI because in kids, it's like, you know, they grow a lot. So their weight might not change, but they might've gotten taller and just stay the same weight. And I'll show them like, Hey, you know, from like the last six months, your BMI has dropped like two points. Did you even know that? And they're like, no, like they didn't even think about the weight. It was all about eating more vegetables. And then I get their lab markers. And, and I really, this is my biggest focus in 2020 is actually to go back to all my patients um, and collect that data to show sort of the effects that I that I've seen in the clinic because people would normalize their cholesterol, prediabetes would go away, weight would shift on you know back onto their normal curve, and really was always sort of and they would start to make other changes. Obviously, they come in. We talk about processed foods. We talk about you know and I always talk about not drinking calories. Talk about exercise. But the biggest shift was sort of the eating more vegetables. That's sort of how they got on it. So anyway, and in clinic I adopted this mantra. That I was like I should change my name to Doctor Vegetable because it's all I ever talk about. Well. Sorry, this is really long-winded. Good, good, <laughs> good. But um, but you know, I'm seeing all these kids in clinic. It's it's wonderful. But in the same hand, I just feel like there's we're up against such a powerful industry that really does not want this to change. And big food targeted to kids with sugar and processed foods is out of control. It's like out of control. And so Micah started pre, Micah started first or kindergarten and he brought home the box top flyer one, um, one day, you know, from school. And I just almost lost it. I was like, this is like exactly what is wrong with this country. I was like, General Mills only makes processed food. They want you to collect the box tops, bring it to school for like money for the school. It sounds really nice, but like what the food is, it's crap. It's terrible. Um, and so then, you know, I'm like getting all hot and bothered. <laughs> um, and John's like, you know what, we should do something about it. Like, let's do something like, why don't we make like a healthy version of box tops? And I was like, well, that's a good idea. And so then we let that, we pondered that for a little bit of time, kicked it around for a while. And then we, you know, we decided 
why not try it? So we did a test run at our school, hit our kids' school last year, um, in last spring. And we basically had them just collect uh, fruit or vegetable stickers or like labels or a bunch of stuff just to show. And they had these little sticker sheets, the sticker sheets that they did. And we went in, we did this assembly. We bought, we got these um, costumes, these vegetable costumes from the age. Well aware. I love the vegetable costume. (laughs) That was was not in the first iteration. I have a good friend. Her name is Marley. If you're listening, Marley, she was like, Hey, I know you guys are doing this assembly. Do you want like a couple of costumes from us? So we can like, John can dress up like a tomato and play a song because John's very musical. And I was like, that's a fantastic idea. So we did that in our assembly. The kids just loved it. You know, I did my dot, my spiel. I always do in clinic about how vegetables are good for you and what they do and blah, blah, blah. And then John came in and sang a silly song to like music and talked about poop and it. And the kids just loved it. And they went home yeah. and their parents are e- emailing us. Like my son has never once in his life asked for carrots. And he came home demanding carrots last my night. My kids sing baby carrot. <laughs> <laughs> And so it was this great success. We made a $500 donation to the school that was earmarked for the school's garden. And we were like, this is something, this is really something. And so, you know, we were like, we, how do we, how do we grow this? And the best way to grow it is to become a nonprofit. Cause that way, that way you can get tax deductible, um, you know, big donations. And, um, we became a 501 C three in the summer. We had our second run of the Dr. Vegetable shop crops, knock box tops campaign in November. And we're going to be making a thousand dollar donation, um, to the school this month, and they're going to use it to pave the new blacktop for their four square playing. We really try to earmark all of this to go to um, something healthy related at schools. And so our goal with Dr. Vegetable really, we, for every nonprofit, you have to have a, a, free, a mission for which you would no longer be in existence. And ours is Dr. Vegetable's mission is to have a future of um, no preventable heart disease. So in the, you know, so like anything that's preventable from a heart disease perspective, you could, we could work on healthy habits to prevent future heart disease. And so that's clearly never going to happen, but you have, (laughs) but you have, but it'd be awesome if it did. Exactly. And all of this starts in childhood, it's lifelong. And so our goal is to, it is, uh, so the shop crops, not box tops campaigns is really kind of one of the focuses of Dr. Vegetable. We have big ideas for trying to make veggies fun again in various ways. We have a YouTube channel, we have a TikTok that we need to start adding more to. We haven't gotten in there in a while, but really, I don't, I don't know, sky's the limit. If donations that are being made now are going to be directly to getting this program into more schools, making more donations. We will have a lot more information this year. We've already been brainstorming about how we can actually get this out more into like a package deal that people can get into their schools a little easier. So um, really those donations right now, if you make a donation to us, are going to go directly to the schools or to getting the um, very low admin fees. They're mostly going to go to schools um, to try to get this out there more. Ah, I'm so proud of you. I just want to say that. I'm just, I think this is a huge undertaking, but the legacy of something like this is going to impact so many people. And we always talk about if you can just reach one person, how impactful is that? But imagine really changing the mindset for children and for a lot of them. So I'm just so proud to be your friend and so proud of what you and John have decided to undertake with Dr. Vegetable. I also want to say that you're pretty awesome, but John is too. So John and Jason became BFF at Pinnacle One. I don't know the... They have all these inside jokes now. I don't even understand, <laughs> like Nutria or something. Um, 
But you can hang out with both Renee and myself and John and Jason if you want to come to Pinnacle in Hawaii in June. Mm-hmm. Registration is still open and you can find that on my website. But that's going to be a conference full of just personal professional development workshops, a lot about how you can lean into your own potential. And a lot of the stuff that I feel like Renee is really excelled on or talked about here, a bunch of mindset about how can you be the best version of you and the best friend and supporter of everybody else. So we would love to see all of you there also. Yeah, for sure. Come to Hawaii. Yes. Um, Tell everybody just how to follow you in all your different places again, even though I said at the beginning of this episode, end us out by telling us where we can find you. So I am most active on Instagram. That is at Dr. Renee Paro, D-R-R-E-N-E-E-P-A-R-O. You can, I also have a website, www.reneeparo.com, I think. Yes, www.reneeparo.com. Our Dr. Vegetable website is www.drvegetable, spelled doctor, spelled all the way out, .org. Um, and there you can find all about stuff that's always constantly going go, undergoing new um, edits and things. And then we have a YouTube channel channel that's under Dr. Vegetable. Our TikTok is also Dr. Vegetable. Um, and I think those are all the things. I'm on Facebook, but not super active. And yeah, those are the places that I really am. And you have a podcast we didn't even talk about. Oh, yeah, podcast, Reconciling Medicine, <laughs> which will be coming out soon in January with season two. Give people, the one, give people the one-liner about what your podcast is about in case they're looking for a new one. So it's called Reconciling Medicine. It is both John and I who do it. Um, we really just talk about how to reconcile medicine in your life. It came out of um, people who are in medicine know about when you have to reconcile meds. You always have to reconcile meds on um, when somebody comes home with their medications when they're getting them into the hospital or if they're going from the ICU to the step down or they're getting discharged from the hospital. We're always reconciling medications. And so we thought it would be, um, you know, we have learned to have medicine as a part of our life, but not all of our life. Um, and I think that's a big change that we are trying to hope to instill in physicians with record, you know, record numbers of burnout, people leaving the field. Because they let you let the people are letting medicine consume them in its entirety. So we, you know, we feel like we've achieved a pretty good balance of loving being doctors, but loving our life too. And that's because we've learned how to quote air quotes, reconcile it into our lives. So that's sort of what we talk about on the podcast. And you, I haven't said this anywhere, but we are going to be having guests soon. Oh, that's exciting. Mm-hmm. Season Super two is going to be with more guests. Yay. Okay. Well, everybody go listen um, to Reconciling Medicine. If you haven't, you need to go subscribe and listen to Renee and John's podcast. Renee, thank you so much for being here. I think we could have talked all day, but trying to keep this episode less than an hour. So I'm going (laughs) to end it now with a huge, huge thanks. You are amazing. Love you. All right, friends. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I just, well, obviously had a blast talking to Renee. But I love some of the things, how she structures her life and how she is always there and supporting other people. I think it is really something that we can all look to and try to be like. So be more like Renee and show up for the people in your life without expecting anything in return. Let's just work on elevating others and being that person. Let's take care of everyone. A huge thank you to all of you for always taking care of me. Hope you have a good one. And happy one-year birthday to my podcast baby. Thanks, guys.